Welcome to this Google audio presentation of The Man from UNCLE, The Doomsday Affair, by Harry Whittington. Volume 6, Part 3, Interlude in Bedlam. 1. Solo climbed the dark, free-swinging staircase upward from the Stygian darkness of the pit. He was tired. He did not know how long he had been climbing or how far he had yet to go. Moonlight filtered through a small opening incredibly far above him, and it glittered faintly on the metal steps. And the only thought his aching brain could contain was that he had to keep climbing until he somehow reached the lit escape hatch. He released the bamboo railing long enough to paw at the sweat on his face at the pressure behind his eyeballs. He almost fell. He clutched out wildly, grabbing the rickety railing, clinging to it, while the round hole of light bounced like the white ball in a beer commercial. He jerked open his collar and loosened his tie, feeling suffocated, as if he were enclosed in a debilitating heat compartment. He didn't know where he was, and he tried to think how he had got there. He stumbled. The attempt to think only started the wild little man with his sledgehammer again banging at the backs of his eyeballs. He gave up trying to think and concentrated on climbing. It was so far upward to that lit round hole, and yet somehow he had to make it before he strangled in the heat or suffocated from lack of oxygen. He breathed through his mouth, gasping, his head tilted back and his gaze fixed on that ragged opening with the wan moonlight beyond it. It looked wonderfully cool up there in the open, if he could only make it before he fell again or drowned in his own sweat. Solo gave an agonizing yawn, stunned with fatigue. He didn't know how he could take one more step upward, and yet the alternative was to tumble back into the bottomless dark. He shuddered, clinging to the railing that swayed precariously. Suddenly he heard something that made his heart miss a beat. He stiffened, listening. There was a faint, whispering laugh from the light above him. A man's voice said, Welcome back to life, Mr. Solo, and welcome also to Broadmoor Rest. 2. Solo's eyes jerked open. The movement almost took off his skull. He turned his head, and the pain washed down through him. He saw that he was on a round, king-sized bed in a beige-tinted room, with doors opening off into other rooms of a suite, uniformly decorated and painted. There was movement behind him. He jerked his head around, instinctively tensing his body. His instincts brought him only searing pain and a red haze that danced before his eyes like fireflies. The haze faded, cleared, and behind it he saw Samuel Su Yan. The Chinese-American smiled faintly with that mismatched face that looked as if it had been designed by a committee. He sat casually in a chair next to the bed. He had a small brown box in his lap. Solo pressed the heels of his hands against his temples trying to subdue the agony of his drug-hangover headache. Starting with hatred at Su Yan, he said slowly, 
if this is a rest home, it's not a very good one. I don't seem to have had a very good night's sleep. Broadmoor Rest is a singular fine refuge from the world, Suyan said. Most singular indeed, as you shall discover in time. As for the pain, I'll have a nurse bring you sedation, if you wish. You may as well live your final hours in comfort. A man deserves peace and comfort at the end of his life. Solo grimaced. I hardly expected to hear words of compassion from you. A man would blow a young girl's face away with a device inside a lay of flowers. Suyan's face remained flatly expressionless for a moment and then shrugged. A mistake of Americans. Our allies are angels. Our enemies are all soulless butchers. You would improve your relations with the rest of the world if you realized your enemies are human beings, with simply opposing ideology motivating them. We too are working for a better world, Mr. Solo. Our idea of a better world. That's all. Too bad Americans won't have time to learn this now. Solo's smile was cold. What did you do with that part of you that was once half American? What I am going to do with the rest of America, my dear Solo? I destroyed it. Solo shrugged. Then you'll forgive me if I continue to have doubts about how genuine your compassion is. To me, Su Yan, old enemy, you are a soulless butcher. Su Yan's face remained expressionless. Don't make the mistake of underestimating men, no matter how much you hate them. Do you think I want to be doing what I am? I know what a great deal of the earth's surface may be rendered unlivable for vegetation for centuries, but it so happens I believe with all my heart that the two great powers exploit and misrule this world through applied philosophy and might and threat. Your soul? Solo asked ironically. My soul? Suyan replied coldly. Yes. I admit to you I killed that young woman. I used flowers as a vehicle of death. I've killed others. I will kill again. The sacrifices are for the greater good, and I do not pretend they always make me happy or pleased with what must be done. I'd far rather be alone in my study. I'm involved in a modern translation from the original Vedic Sanskrit of the most ancient sacred literature of the Hindus, the Veda. There are more than one hundred extant books in addition to the four sadhitos, prayers, hymns, the liturgical formula that are at the foundation of the Vedic religion, which dates back at least to 1100 B.C., possibly to 1500 B.C. The Rig Veda are the hymns of the oldest religion on earth. This is what I would love to do. But it must wait, for the better day we shall bring to this world. Solo was sitting up in the bed now, swaying a bit as vertigo and pain battered at his senses. But he brought himself under control and said bitterly, You don't convince me, Su Yan. Your pious scholasticism is just a cover for what you really feel. 
I don't know if you're trying to fool the rest of the world or just yourself, but I know underneath a sophisticated scholar, you're just an animal. A mindless animal with no more sense than to try to start a war that could destroy the world. Suyan's eyes narrowed for an instant. Solo heard a quick breath. Then the imperturbable mask returned and he said, Insult me if you wish, Solo. Perhaps it makes you feel better, like an aspirin to alleviate the pain of your failure against me. I have no objection to your being as comfortable and happy as possible. Look about you. Look at the elegance of this suite, the fine appointments. Nothing has been spared for creature comforts. You see, Mr. Solo, you may not be here very long, actually, but it may seem long as the time drags past. That's why I'd like you comfortable, occupied. With a faint smile, he upturned the cardboard box, spilling out Solo's uncle attaché case. The component parts had been carefully dismantled so that the cleverly rigged bag of electronic communications and survival gimmicks, as well as those of attack and demolition, were so much useless wire, plastic, copper, wool, welding chemicals, and miscellaneous metal. Solo stared at the complete ruin, expertly accomplished. We turned it over to our chemists and engineers for dismantling Solo. They were very amused by it. They found it in part ingenious, and in other parts completely naive, almost backwards, as compared to our best efforts, of course. Of course, Solo said. I have returned your dismantled toys in all their childlike splendor to help you pass your time while you are our guest. It will help you pass the hours and can do no harm unless you happen to blow off your hand or explode an eye. He gazed at Solo. You will play carefully with your toys, won't you? Does it please you to display your contempt, Suyan? We all have different manners of achieving pleasure, hmm? If you say so. Have fun, Solo. I'm afraid, however, that no matter in what manner you reassemble all these component parts, they will avail you nothing in this place. The room is solid concrete and completely soundproof. You'll disturb no one, but I'm sure you will enjoy trying. Speaking of pleasure, Suyan, there's one of your pleasures I'd like to inquire about. Suyan shrugged. Ask me anything. Where's Barbary? What kind of sadism are you practicing on her? Suyan gave him a baleful look of mock hurt. How you wrong me, Solo. Where is she? Suyan laughed and shrugged. I said I wanted to make you comfortable, and this would include peace of mind, would it not? His mouth pulled into an enigmatic smile. I wouldn't want you fretting over little Esther Kapmeyer. He took a small two-inch microphone from his cuff into his palm and spoke into it. Barbary was brought in almost at once by a white-smocked nurse. Solo studied the girl closely. She looked tired, and there was a resigned slump to her shoulders, to her whole body. Her eyes held that empty glaze that he had seen when he had returned to his room in the St. Francis Hotel. She remained in whatever trance it pleased Su Yan to hold her in. She was like a robot. 
Sobel saw he would be unable to reach her consciousness either by speaking to her or touching her. Are you all right, Barbary? He said with no hope that she would even look at him. She sat on the edge of the round, king-sized bed where the nurse had led her. She stared straight ahead of her. Of course she's all right, Suyan said impatiently. Why wouldn't she be? She'll live in elegance here that, believe me, she was entirely unaccustomed to outside. Suyan glanced around the room at the dining alcove, the impressive fireplace, the sitting room, the bath, the second bathroom. He nodded, pleased. Very cozy. However, I think I can give you an even happier group by adding a member. His face twisted with chilled smiling as he spoke commands a second time into the hand microphone. Solo tensed, watching him. He stood unmoving as the sweet doors were pushed open again. His eyes widened and illness spread in the pit of his stomach, compounded by outrage and futility. Two white-suited orderlies, bulkily made, their faces gleaming with their sweat, almost cattle-like stupidity, their muscles thick and corded, entered. Between them walked Elia Karyakin. His slender face was pale, his eyes fixed on nothingness. The difference in the way he moved in Barbary was that she was like a robot, mechanical, awaiting commands. Elia looked mindless, not like a robot at all, but like a zombie. Solo stiffened, hearing Su Yan's blandly mocking voice. So you see, Mr. Solo, no matter how rugged things may look to you, you are much better off than many others, aren't you? 3. Solo held his breath at the sight of the two mindless bodies that had been left with him inside this smartly furnished suite for the insane. The indirect gliding reflected itself in the flat surfaces of their eyes. He lifted Elia's arm, tested his pulse, finding the merest trace. On the other extreme was Barbary's racing pulses, the swirling shadows in her eyes. He looked at them, thinking they would stay seated as they were until the world ended, which might not be in the too distant future, unless he was able to find some way out of here for all of them, or for himself alone. He gently pushed Barbary back on the bed so that she at least looked comfortable to him. He supposed in her state she rested as well sitting up. She lay down obediently for him upon her back. She did not close her eyes. She lay staring through the ceiling, through the dome of the sky, through the roof of heaven. He winced, thinking he might find a way out of this alone. He hated the thought of leaving them behind, and yet all he needed was the chance to get word to Uncle Headquarters. As quickly as that, the balance would shift to their side. But if they found him gone, how long would Elia or Barbary live? If he stayed, how long would the world itself last? Solo smiled wryly. Here he was, considering the possibility of escaping from what must be an improbable fortress. He prowled the room, unable to sit still. Not even the complicated puzzle of the dismantled component parts from his attack and survival case could keep him in a chair. He needed something to make, something that would aid him somehow. 
There seemed a million unrelated parts spread out there, waiting, challenging. If he only knew what to do with them. The steady hum continued that he had noticed from the depths of the building, from somewhere underneath him. And there were no windows that looked from this room upon anything except stone foundation, which meant this suite was below ground. The unceasing sound continued. He found the steel bars at the windows were sunk deeply in the concrete, defying even a heat bomb. Besides, the windows led nowhere. Set high in the walls were the grates of the air-conditioning complex. The fireplace had once been a working one, apparently, but now it was strictly ornamental. A heavy steel plate barred the chimney opening. The doors of the room were flat-surfaced inside, with a small peephole covered on the outer facing the kind of sight opening that you would find in any insane asylum. The doors swung inwardly easily, but there seemed no way to force them open from within. He exhaled heavily, sweated, prowling all the rooms of the suite like a caged animal, despairing, but not tired. Lunch came. Solo abandoned his fruitless searching of the suite and sat at the linen-covered table in the alcove. He ate alone. The orderlies attempted to rouse Elion Barbary to the food, but quickly dismissed the idea. As he ate, he stared at Elia and the girl, trying to think how he might lift them from this artificially imposed lethargy. The food, a roast chicken with tiny green peas, feathery light mashed potatoes, a tossed salad, wine, and coffee, was served by a tan-suited waiter who was obsequiously polite but watchful. The service was perfect, but the man neither asked questions nor answered them. And then, when lunch was cleared away, Solo was left alone in the suite again with the silent Elia and Barbary. He forced himself to draw a chair to the table where Su Yan had emptied the dismantled gadgets from his attaché case. Somehow he felt he was doing exactly what Su Yan wanted him to do that anything he could do would only play into his hands, or at the very best would be useless. He refused to become enmeshed in this negative thinking. The wires, metal, batteries, plastic, all so meaningful when assembled, were like parts of some fantastic jigsaw puzzle. He went on sitting there, refusing to permit his mind to wander from the immediate task he had set for himself. He sorted all the pieces, painstakingly, with infinite patience. Perhaps if he saw what he had, he might see what he could do with it, or maybe it ground down to what Su Yan had said. It passed the time. He gazed with pride at the small stacks and piles and sets and pyramids and assortments, plastics, wires, batteries, minute aluminum cones, empty pellets. Even a communication earplug had been dismantled. Solo's concentration was interrupted by the arrival of the waiter with his dinner. He was startled to look up and know the six hours at least had passed since he'd eaten his lunch. Nothing seemed altered much. Elia remained where he was. Barbary lay unmoving on the bed. The busy hum of motors continued from deep within the earth. How are things in the outside world? Solo inquired. It's raining, sir, the waiter answered before he thought. Solo saw the man's face go gray, as if he were frightened because he had spoken to him. Don't worry, 
I won't tell a soul, Solo said. He ate the small filet mignon, drank his wine and coffee, poked at his salad, pushed the rest of it away. Alone again, he returned to his hopeless, thankless task, as if his life depended on it. He was still at it when the engine ceased grumbling beneath him, when silence seeped down from the chateau above. The congestion of parts wavered before his eyes. He yawned savagely. He got up and prowled the suite, returning to his chair. There was a tension and silence in this place now. He supposed it must be early in the morning, those black hours between midnight and false dawn, hours when anyone in his right mind would be sleeping. Why shouldn't he sleep? This was a rest home, after all, wasn't it? No, no, it was not a rest home. This was just a circumlocution for an insane asylum. He was in an insane asylum. So why should he assume he was in his right mind anyway? Drowsy sat down in the chair and reached for a small metal spring, trying to bring his thoughts back to focus by concentrating on the parts before him. But the drowsiness continued. Broadmoor rest, he thought. Where had he heard that name before? Something. Something in the uncle briefings. He just couldn't remember. His head nodded and he sank forward on the table. He was asleep before his cheek settled upon the wood. 4. He awoke with a start. There had been a noise behind him and he jerked erect, turning. But it was only the waiter bringing breakfast. He set the tray down on the table, his eyes flickering over Solo silently. Solo yawned loudly and rubbed his eyes. The waiter started to leave, but Solo said, Just a minute. The man paused, eyeing Solo cautiously. Solo yawned again exaggeratedly, like a man who had had far too little sleep and was having trouble waking. The waiter seemed to believe it. A faint smile touched the corners of his mouth. My friends, Solo said thickly, haven't eaten since God knows when. We ought to see if we can get them to swallow something. Will you give me some help feeding them? The man's eyes narrowed suspiciously and Solo laughed, letting it trail off into another yawn. The story of my life. I can never get a waiter when I want one. He sat up, running his fingers through his hair. Look, you've got a guard right outside the door. I'm not trying anything funny. It's too early in the morning to get shot. The waiter hesitated visibly, then stepped over to the bed and looked at Barbary and Elia. Barbary was still asleep, but Elia had awoken at the sound of Solo's voice and was trying to sit up. His limbs thrashed about weakly, and he sat back down. Looks sinister, doesn't he? Solo said. Obviously very dangerous. The waiter flushed. All right, he said. Bring the tray. But any funny business, and I'll yell my head off. Remember that. Solo picked up the tray from the table and looked over at the bed. The waiter nodded for him to sit down. You feed him while I hold him steady. Solo nodded, and the waiter approached Elia cautiously. Elia watched him coming, eyes flickering from the waiter to Solo. 
Solo smiled at him and winked. The waiter sat down next to Elia, took him by the shoulders, and lifted him into a sitting position. All the time he kept his attention riveted on Solo, alert for any quick boobs. But it was Elia who exploded into action. With wild, deadly strength, his arms flailed out, striking in all directions at once. He butted with his head, jabbed with his elbows, struck with half-balled fists. He had no coordination, no timing. He didn't look like a trained uncle agent in action, but he was effective enough. The waiter fell backwards and slid off the bed, dazed, hurt by several of the wild blows. Instantly, Solo was upon him, chopped him sharply in the neck, and the waiter slumped into a heap on the floor. Solo stood up and smiled at Elia. He didn't even get a chance to yell, Solo said. Not that it matters, the room is soundproofed, as our friend Sue Yan so obligingly told us. A sound like a grotesque laugh came from Elia's throat as he settled back on the bed and his twitching arms and legs relaxed. Solo's eyes narrowed for a moment. The sight of Elia in this state cut deeply into him. But he'd have to leave him here. There would be no chance of escape if he tried to take him along. Quickly, Solo stripped the waiter and changed clothes with him. They were nearly of a size. Fortunately, the waiter's uniform fit Solo reasonably well. Stepping to the door, he knocked on it in the pattern he'd noted the waiter used last time he'd been there. After a moment, there was a buzzing as the lock was electronically freed. Solo stepped through, his head down as if in thought. The guard glanced at him and then took another look. Solo could almost see the guard adding it up in his mind and getting the wrong answer every time. But the few seconds delay caused by Solo's having the uniform on was enough. The guard lunged for the warning button, but Solo struck him at the nape of the neck, caught him, heeled him around, and shoved him through the door into his suite. The door swung shut, and Solo looked around him. At this hour, the subterranean corridor was silent and empty. At its end was a bank of elevators. Solo strode toward them. He stepped inside one that stood open with garbage cans lined outside. It apparently was the maintenance elevator. They weren't likely to be watching this one as closely as the others. He pressed the button marked one. When the elevator bumped to a stop and the doors opened at ground level, Solo stepped out, walking purposefully. He turned left, because that was as good a way to go as any, and a little down the hall he saw a red-lettered exit sign marked Maintenance. He strode to it, then paused, looking for a handle or a button to open. There weren't any. He felt a twist of panic. If anyone should see him standing there, searching the panels beside the door, it would be obvious that he wasn't a waiter despite his uniform. He reached out and ran his fingers quickly along the door jamb, trying to control his mounting tension. His finger brushed an inset plastic bar. It gave under his finger. Exhaling, he pressed it harder, carrying the door lock buzz. He shoved the door, pushing it open, feeling the chill of the early morning air sweep in across his face. He stepped through the door, almost afraid to glance over his shoulder. Never look back. Keep your eye on the future. The door side closed behind him, making a flat brick wall of the rear of the huge chalet. 
He found himself in a grease-tanned cement courtyard with dozens of metal refuse containers lined up like soldiers at attention. The morning was far from silent out here. There was a discordant symphony of sounds, the disturbed barking of police dogs beyond the 15-car stone garage, the pulsing of generators, and the keening wind out of the high mountains rustled the eucalyptus trees. He walked toward the front of the courtyard, off the cement and onto the firm, well-tended grounds surrounding the Broadmoor Rest. There were guards stationed in strategic places all over the grounds. Several of them glanced up as he stepped out into the open, but their glances bounced off his uniform and backed his silent boredom of their sentry duty. The morning was still only dimly lit by the sun peeping over the mountains in the east. Wind flung the manes of the trees wildly, and the dogs kept barking. Did they always bark? Solo wondered this as he kept going along purposefully across the grounds, neither too fast nor too slow. Suddenly, the barking of the dogs became a roaring cacophony, as if that were an electronic impulse setting them off. White lights abruptly hissed on all over the grounds, turning the lawn into a brilliantly illumined cage set down in the dark morning. A rifle fired, the bullet humming only feet from Solo. The barking dogs raced from the kennels. Men came running from all directions. Solo whirled, looking for cover, but there was none. He was all alone on the flat expanse of the grounds, without even a bush to duck behind. And then he was not alone at all. The guards surrounded him. Guns held it ready. Canine trainers fought the huge dogs slathering at their leashes. And something crashed into the back of his head, sending him sprawling to his knees. He saw the grass fresh and dew-covered before him. And then another blow drove everything into blackness. 5. The head security guard's voice snapped out. The two men who had clubbed Solo into the ground now stepped back reluctantly, stood at attention. The security officer spoke in denunciatory tones. The orders were to stop him, not kill him or beat him. Which one of you wants to be responsible for a dead body now when the leader gets here? Would you like to explain it, Warner? Merrick? One of the guards found the temerity to speak in reply. We only wanted to be sure he would know what to expect if he tried it again, sir. When they spoke above him, Solo lay flat, staring in a puzzled way at the lit field. The lights were set in banks at a space three to five times the length of a football field. The grass was close-clipped, the ground hard-packed. Enough for what? Nobody needed this kind of light to illumine a park in order to run down inmates on the loose. Four guards carried Solo slowly back into the building and down the elevator, returning him to his room. He read the time on the wristwatch of one of them. It was after six in the morning. His smile was wry. He had no idea what day this was. Doomsday, perhaps? They tossed him into the suite like a sack of cheap coffee and walked out. The door slid closed without a whisper. Solo lay on the floor for a moment, unable to get two thoughts out of his mind. The first was the size and shape of that lit area out there. 
The answer struck him suddenly with the fierce impact of a thunderclap. An airstrip. It was a long plateau, flat and level, on the top of a mountain larger than Rhode Island. An airstrip where even a fan jet could set down. He sat up suddenly, thinking about that lit airstrip and what the security officer had shouted at his men. Which one of you wants to be responsible for a dead body on your hands when the leader gets here? Solo got to his feet, the pain of the battering he'd taken on the field forgotten. His mind was racing. The leader was arriving. This had to be Tixie Ilno. And this meant his hunch had been right. Su Yan was a big wheel, but he wasn't Tixie Ilno. He hadn't dared to kill him and Barbary and leave their bodies in San Francisco. Su Yan was acting on orders, too. Su Yan had boasted in that hotel room that everything was in readiness. The dying spy in Tokyo had revealed an awesome plot involving an atomic device. Solo breathed out heavily. Perhaps it was Doomsday after all. 6 a.m., the morning of Doomsday. He prowled the room, listening for the sound of an arriving plane, but knowing he could not hear it. These underground walls were soundproofed. He stared helplessly at Elia. When he spoke to him, it seemed to him once that Kiriakin shook his head, but he could not get him to repeat it. There was a razor-sharp mind behind those eyes, but it was trapped and held incommunicado in a presently useless body. Solo went to the table where the countless component parts of his attack gadgetry were sorted out. He glanced across his shoulder at Elia, then back at the wires, the batteries. He sat down, gathering the batteries, wires, and building a simple ground and metal contact. He set the contraption up on a sideboard. Getting a damp cloth from the bathroom, he soaked Elia's hands and arms and led him to the sideboard placed Elia's hands on the metal contact pieces, made the connection between the positive and negative wires. Elia flinched, leaping back. He made a small whimpering sound, but then merely stood, staring, eyes empty. Come on, Elia, Solo said. It's got to work. He pushed Kuriakin's hands against the contacts a second time. Elia cried out, and his limbs jerked spasmodically for long seconds. Then he lay still, staring hopelessly at Solo. It was no use. Whatever Su Yan had done to Elia could not be broken through any electrical shock. Solo sighed and returned Elia to the bed. He took Barbary. She opened her eyes and followed him blankly to the setup at the sideboard. He closed her dampened hands on the contacts, crossed the wire, and Barbary cried out, lunging away from it. He caught her in his arms, watching her face. He saw the slow return of color, the way her eyes focused as though she were awakening from a deep sleep. She straightened, looking about the beige-toned suite. She did not appear to be particularly astonished to be in this place. I was in your room, at the hotel, she said, and, and Sam Su Yan came to the door. When Solo nodded, she continued matter-of-factly. I know this place. Broadmoor Rest. I, I was here once before. Solo didn't speak, watching her. Barbary drew a deep breath. 
I had a nervous breakdown. They sent me here. I saw Sue Yan here for the first time. I didn't want to tell you before, but that was the real reason why Su Yan refused to hire me to spy for Thrush when he hired Ursula. He knew I'd had a breakdown. He was afraid I'd break under tension. That's why they tried to watch me. They were afraid to trust me with a little I knew. What do you know about this place? Is it really a private sanitarium or something else? She frowned. It was a sanitarium once, yeah. But Su Yan got control of it, and it's changed. I'm not sure. What was this threat Su Yan held over you? She sighed. I knew that Ursula worked for him, for Thrush. He told me if I ever breathed a word about it to anyone, he'd see that I was committed to this place for life. It looks like he's done that. Sola did not say anything because he saw no reason for holding out empty hopes for her. Her nerves were fragile enough without being strained with the awesome facts of life of this place. He was pleased when, frightened, she succumbed to natural fatigue and sank down on the bed, soon deeply asleep. He heard the inner hum of motors from the earth beneath him. Stacking chair upon table, he pressed his ear to the air-conditioning duct grate, but the sounds through the building were like vague, confused whispers always subordinated to the throb of the unexplained engines. He jumped down from the chair and replaced it as it had been. It occurred to him that listening devices were one of the easiest gimmicks to assemble. He strode to the table of sorted parts. Using the small aluminum cones, he fashioned larger ones from all available aluminum, which he then formed into a telescopic rod. With an amplifier from the dismantled sender listening set, and the reassembled earplugs, he had himself a directional sound pickup. Returning to the duct grate, he aimed the cones, inserted the earplug which was connected to the sound amplifier. He smiled in cold pleasure. While the sounds he was able to pick up through the elaborate air conditioning system were faint, he could, by moving the cones, locate the direction of each different sound. He examined the duct grate closely, but finally had to give up on the idea of getting out that way. The grate was very solidly welded into the wall, a first-class piece of modern workmanship. But that thought gave him a different idea. The air conditioning had been added to Broadmoor Rest comparatively recently, but the building itself was an old one, probably dating back to the last century. A staid, respectable site for a thrush retreat, but perhaps with a few chinks in the armor. Solo strode to the fireplace in the corner, knelt and looked again at the heavy metal plate which blocked off the chimney. He smiled slightly. It was as he'd hoped. The chimney itself was constructed of brick, so it had been impossible to secure the plate any more firmly than with the use of bolts. And bolts, unlike welding, could be removed comparatively easily. It took him less than half an hour to get the metal plate out of the way. By the time he was finished, he was covered in soot that had probably been there for fifty years or more since whenever the old mansion had been turned into an exclusive private sanitarium and this room into isolation quarters. Looking into the chimney, he found that it led both downward and upward. 
apparently the level he was on wasn't yet the lowest of Broadmoor. He'd suspected that from one of the directional sound pickups in the air conditioning crate. There had been the muffled sound of engines somewhere below. He took one last look around the room, at Elia and Barbary both asleep, and he shoved the sound directional detector into the chimney ahead of him and worked his way into it. Bracing feet and shoulders against the rough walls of the chimney, he inched his way downward into darkness. Loosened soot and dirt cascaded around him. He had to work doubly carefully in order to avoid stirring so much of it he'd be unable to breathe. Twice he gulped up lungfuls of mostly soot and barely managed to keep from breaking out into coughing fits. Then the soot would sink back into the darkness beneath him, and he would breathe in tortured gasps of comparatively clean air. The passage was apparently the main chimney for this part of the building. Solo passed several branches, which apparently led to other sealed-off fireplaces. At one point, light entered the shaft, and as Solo reached that place, he saw another branch leading to another fireplace. This one was not sealed off. No sound came from the room. Apparently, it was unused. From what he could see from the passageway, it seemed to be just a storeroom. He went on, still downward toward the machine sounds, which were growing steadily louder. At last he reached the bottom. The sounds had now become a deep drumming, which filled the shaft with almost physical waves of sound. There was light here, bright light, another unsealed opening. Solo approached it cautiously, as silently as possible, even though he knew any sound he made would be almost certainly lost amid the engine noise below. Then his feet touched a bed of soft ashes, and he sank into them nearly up to his knees. There was a semi-brittle crust to the ash pile, as though it had lain undisturbed for scores of years. Except for where his feet sank into them, the ashes remained undisturbed. It was a large burning area, Solo saw. Apparently it had been originally used as the main incinerator for the building. Now, with the ashes settled into a depth of only a few feet, the unused incinerator formed a small, shadowed room with an opening about three feet square through which brilliant white light lanced sharply. Solo paused, then knelt slowly, letting his eyes grow accustomed to the light before he risked a look outside. When he did, he stared out into a hangar-sized area with blindingly white lights. He couldn't even guess how far below ground this massive room was, but he knew it must be deep inside the mountain. Electronic controls, computers, switches, and testing equipment were banked along the white walls. He moved his gaze slowly until he had passed over the radiation-suited figures in the heart of the immense plant, the place where the separately gathered components had now been assembled into a small but obviously functional atomic device. He stared at the assembled device, eyes wide. As he watched, an abrupt whistle blew through the huge arena scooped from the earth. The white-suited, helmeted engineers and scientists at work in the chamber where the atomic device had been assembled stopped working and lined up to exit the glass-enclosed room within the larger plant. Solo held his breath as the first man stepped through the double set of exit doors. 
Outside the chamber, they pulled off their helmets. The impact was like a sharp blow in the face to Solo. One's mind reeled under the incredulous truth being revealed to him. Abruptly, he remembered why the name of Broadmoor Rest had seemed so familiar to him from the uncle briefings. Again and again over the past two years, reports had come in from parts of the United States, Russia, France, Germany, records of scientists, engineers, physicists, all in sensitive missile work, each suffering mental breakdown, going to one sanitarium or another, but all he now realized eventually ended up here at Broadmoor Rest Home. Though the briefings had mentioned this place often enough to impress its title on his mind, there had been no concentrated reading of the names and the professions of the men arriving here in an almost constant stream in the past 24 months. He shook his head. Though often repeated, the idea of mentally ill men and their arrival at Broadmoor had not been noted in any context that would give it meaning. Not until now. Those men had certainly been subjected to unnatural pressures, tensions, and strains. Many of them crumpled under it, and it didn't add up to anything except the increased tempo of life in the atomic age. Men's minds and nerves snapped. They needed hospitalization and treatment. Broadmoor Rest had been internationally respected as one of the best. These men had earned the best possible care. Who would suspect they came here, not because they were ill at all, but because they had sold out their governments, their families, their careers, for quick fortunes dangled before them by thrush? Well, here they were. Every face revealed to Solo by the removal of a helmet was familiar to him from photos in the uncle briefings. Every reputation was known to him, along with the facts of mental or nervous breakdown. Dr. Wolfgang von Schisnag from the Western Zone of Germany, Kurt Helmerich, Pierre Curie de Davad, Liam Murphy O'Hurley, the whole long list of brilliant engineers and scientists. He slumped there for a long time, hidden in the darkness of the abandoned incinerator shaft, watching the who's who of missile scientists pass by him. It took some moments for him to recover, he who had few illusions left concerning him about every man and his price.